invite you to join me in Hebrews 9. If you're not there already, Hebrews 9. I had Jordan read verses 1 to 15. But really, we're going to focus on the first 10 verses this morning. I wanted to get those last five verses in there because really, that's where, that's where the hope is. That's where it turns, where our heart thrills. And at the foundation of those first 10 verses are very important, so that's the foundation we're going to lay this morning. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning we do rejoice in the simple truths of Psalm 23 that the Lord, that you are our shepherd, and we shall not want. Heavenly Father, so often life becomes so distracting. The waves of our problems take our eyes off of you, and yet that simple truth that you are our shepherd, and because of that alone, we shall not want what hope there is. May we cling to that truth, Heavenly Father, no matter what life brings our way, knowing that we shall not want because the Lord is our shepherd. Heavenly Father, we pray that you, our God, the one who is worthy of all worship, that this morning that your name would be lifted high. As we turn our attention now to this passage, a unique passage, and yet may we see your holiness, your righteousness, your goodness, your graciousness. And may you be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. I'd like to welcome you to Altoona Regular Baptist Tour Agency. This morning we're going to be taking a tour of the tabernacle. So I invite you to strap in, keep your hands and your legs to yourself. If you need an exit, there's an exit in the back. There's an exit this way as well. Uh, do not stick your head out the windows uh, and hold on tight. If we do end up in the water, your seat cannot be used as a flotation device. It's just the seat. It's kind of silly, but in reality this morning, that's what this passage is. It is a tour of the tabernacle. I've had the opportunity to travel internationally a little bit uh, throughout my life. I've had the opportunity to visit Amsterdam and India and um, Israel and China. And some of those trips have not been the most heart-thrilling. You know, it's... When my grandpa told me, I'm going to take you on a trip, that was exciting. When he said, it's to India, that was not quite as exciting as if he would have said, you know, Paris or London. Those are, those are exciting places to go. India has some awesome stuff as well. But that trip impacted my life in a way that a trip to Paris or London probably would not have impacted my life. You see, as my grandfather took me to India, I saw things that I would not have seen elsewhere. I saw people who had a lot less than me. I've often told the story of sitting in this, we were there for a Bible conference that my grandfather was preaching at at this college, and on the first night, I'm sitting there, and there's all three of the pastors that they brought for this conference are sitting there on the stage. And we sing for probably 20 minutes. It's hot, there's no air conditioning, the, air, the, the windows and the doors are all open, and I am sweating. And the first preacher gets up there and he preaches a full message. 
And he sits down. The second preacher gets up and preaches a full message and sits down. My grandfather gets up and preaches a full message and sits down. And they do this morning and night for a week, and I was exhausted. And yet the young people were just soaking it up. They could not get enough of the Word of God. That was eye-opening to me as a young man. That was challenging to me. Why was it that I grew so easily tired of the Word of God? I remember on that trip, we went out and took a tour of the city. I saw extreme poverty that I could never have imagined. At one point, we were riding on this electric rickshaw. I wasn't sure if I was going to make it back alive. Our driver was insane, weaving in and out of traffic. And we get to this one stop, and this lady comes up to me, and her hands and her fingers were all curled up, and there were bubbles all over her, and her face looked disgusting, and she was asking for money. And as we left, the guy next to me leaned over and said, she has leprosy. First time I'd ever seen someone with leprosy. It's eye-opening. We went out to the country to visit some of the pastors that supported this college. Pastors who lived in extreme poverty that I could never imagine. And yet they were so giving and so loving and so accepting. During the conference, we didn't have to eat with the students. We ate with the president and the other speakers of the college. But we went and toured where the students were eating. And I remember seeing the food on their plate and thinking, I could not eat that. And yet they were just eating it up. Experiences like that. They are eye-opening experiences. They are experiences that change your life. When you come back here to America, they open your eyes to how good that you really have it. That I don't have to eat that. And yet they also show weaknesses in your life, do they not? Why is it that I grow so easily tired of sitting under the preaching of the Word of God? Why is it that I've grown so soft? Why can't I just toughen up and deal with it? Why don't I love the Word of God like they do? Why don't I hunger and thirst for it like they do? As we come to our passage this morning, it's a passage like that. It's not a passage that is heart-thrilling, but it is a passage that is eye-opening. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look. We're going to take a tour of the tabernacle. And what we're going to see is we're going to see the facts of the Old Covenant, and then we're going to see the weakness of the Old Covenant. And that's where we're going to end this morning. Next week, Lord willing, we'll get to verses 11 to 15, and we'll see the superiority of the New Covenant. But it's important for us to go on this tour this morning. It's important for us to see these facts and this weakness, to go and to see what it was like, so that we can appreciate all the more what we have in Christ. So the first thing we see this morning, and I don't have, I didn't put together a big outline this morning. Uh, we don't have a big PowerPoint. Really, it's just this slide, the tour of the tabernacle, because I want you to follow along in your mind's eye uh, and follow along in the passage. I want your eyes to be on this as we work through this. So the first thing that we see here is the facts of the old covenant. In verses 1 to 5, the author of Hebrews here really isn't making any comment on if this is good or bad or anything. He's just saying, this is what it was like. This is the tabernacle. Starts out here in verse 1. 
Then, indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and earthly, and the earthly sanctuary. Then, indeed. You might remember last week, at the end of chapter 8, we saw this new covenant that has replaced the old covenant, the, the passing away of the old covenant, and the superiority of the new covenant. So now as you come to chapter 9, the author of Hebrews is, is still in, he's still comparing these two covenants. And so what he's doing now is he's turning his attention not just to the covenants themselves, but to the tabernacles, the places of worship. Where did worship happen under this old covenant? Even the first covenant, this old covenant, had ordinances of divine service and earthly sanctuary. These ordinances are regulations. The idea here is that, that in this old covenant, this first covenant that God gave, he set up regulations, ways that he wanted to be worshipped. Ordinances of divine service, the priests who would lead worship, and the earthly sanctuary, the tabernacle where worship would be led. So there were these ordinances. Note here also that the author of Hebrews, he's not dismissing. He's not dismissing this old covenant. These were set up by God. He's not here saying that this was bad. This was good. That's his meant. Note this. God set this up. They had ordinances of divine service. They had a priesthood set up by God. They had an earthly sanctuary, a tabernacle, as you'll see, Set up by God. Now the author of Hebrews in this passage, he's going to deal with these two things, this priesthood and this tabernacle. But he interestingly deals with them in opposite order of what he introduces them to us here. Divine service, priests, and earthly sanctuary. Now in verse 2, he turns his attention to the sanctuary. In verse 6, he'll turn his attention to the priests. What is this sanctuary? Verse 2, for a tabernacle was prepared. A tabernacle was prepared. He wants us to be clear that he's talking here about the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. This is not the temple, even though the temple later would, would model this tabernacle and would look like that. He's focusing on this tabernacle. There are 50 chapters in the Old Testament devoted to the tabernacle. Did you realize that? 50 chapters in the Old Testament in the Old Testament, devoted to the tabernacle. God was very serious about this. Down to the very details of what it looked like. The materials that it would be made out of. He was particular. In fact, he equipped Bezalel and Aholiah, uniquely gifted them by God with the, st with the skills to accomplish this tabernacle that God planned to build it as God planned it and wanted it. And set it out. This tabernacle was really what it was, was a tent. There was an outer courtyard, and there was a tent. As you walk into the tent, this tent was divided into two parts. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to deal with here. This first part is the holy place, and then the back part was the holy of holies, the holiest place. Between these two sections, there was a curtain blocking them off. 
We've probably seen pictures in Sunday school and other things of what this tabernacle looked like. It was a tent, so as they moved around, they were able to move this tent with them through the wilderness. Now the author of Hebrews jumps in to explain this. This tabernacle was prepared. We've already mentioned a little bit what it looked like, but this first part, right? So the holy place, as you first were to walk into it, you walk into this first half of it. You can't see the second half. It's divided off by a curtain, but in this first half, it is the holy place. There's a couple of things that you would see right away as you walk in. In this first part, there is the lampstand the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. This lampstand is the menorah. It provides light. It is the only source of light inside this tabernacle. It represents the light that Israel was meant to be to the Gentiles. Jesus, as he comes, he says what? I am the light of the world. The only one. I am the only light. This tabernacle was very particularly set up by God. Everything in there has meaning. Everything in there has purpose. So you have this lampstand. It provides light. Secondly, you have the table and the showbread. On this table was the showbread. Twelve loaves of bread renewed every Sabbath. And then it would sit there for another week until the next Sabbath when it was renewed. The old was eaten by the priests. They're in the holy place. Reminding them of God's presence that sustained them. I am your God. I sustain you. I provide light. So you have the table on which this bread is. You have the bread itself, which is called the sanctuary. This first part, the holy place, as you'll see even down uh, into verse 6, that the priests had regular access to this first part, this holy place. They would go in, they would do their duties, do what was required of them, their work as a priest. They could come in and out. But behind the second veil, all right, so the first veil is the veil from the outside, the courtyard, to get into the tent. Once you walk in, now you're inside this first part. You're inside this sanctuary, this holy place. Halfway through, there is this veil, a curtain that is hung, that restricts access to the next part. Behind the second veil the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. This is the holy of holies. What makes this place so holy? Why is there a curtain that divides it from the holy place? And so the author of Hebrews goes on to tell us, which had the golden censer, and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. It's called the holiest of holies. It has these things in it, the ark of the covenant and the golden censer. An interesting note, almost every commentator I read 
noted that the golden censer, this golden altar, was not actually in the holiest of holies. But it was a very much a part of the ministry of the holy of holies. If you picture the setup of this tent, you walk in, off to your left would be the menorah providing light, off to the right, the table of showbread, and right in the front, right in the middle, right at the entrance of the Holy of Holies, there would be this golden altar, this golden censer. It was on this censer that burnt incense, that incense was burned every morning and every evening. David talks about this incense that, that goes up as the prayers of the saints to the Lord. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the coals from the altar were used to burn incense before the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Again, this is situated right in front in the holy place, right outside of the holy of holies, but is situated so that the incense and the smoke of these offerings goes into the holy of holies. The other thing that is inside of this holiest of all, the holy of holies, is the Ark of the Covenant. We know this Ark, it is a, essentially a little box. It is overlaid on all sides, both inside and outside, with gold. And which were the golden pot? In fact, notice here the use of the word gold. The other Hebrews really wants us to get that this is beautiful, that this is special. There's the golden censer. There's the, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which was the golden pot. He's really painting a picture for how beautiful this is. This is unique. There's time and effort and skill and, and money that has gone into this. Because God is worthy. This Ark of the Covenant is described here inside of it is the golden pot that had the manna. The manna represents God's provision for his people in the wilderness. It also had Aaron's rod that budded. Again, a note of, of God's choice of Aaron and the Levites. It stands out as a, as a warning against rebellion. In number 17, it's Korah's rebellion. Korah leads a rebellion. Swallowed up by the earth. The whole point of his rebellion is, is who are you and Aaron to lead? We should be leading. In number 17, you have the story then of all the leaders of Israel bringing, laying down their staffs. And God says, whichever staff buds, that is the one that I have chosen. The next morning they come back, it is Aaron's staff that has budded. And not budded just with flowers, but with almonds, with fruit even. In abundance. God is making it clear, this is who I have chosen. It's a reminder to his people that God has chosen Aaron and also that God has provided. He's provided priests to go between the people and God. He's provided some access. Also, in this, covenant, in this Ark of the Covenant, you have the tablets of the covenant. God's expectations and their covenant with God. We will keep these. It testifies to the holiness of God. 
the greatness of God. Above, on top of this Ark of the Covenant, with the cherubim. Cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Cherubim are those that guard the presence of God. That's what we see them doing in Scripture. We see them guarding. In the Garden of Eden, as Adam and Eve are kicked out, and God sets those that would guard the entrance so they cannot get back in, what is it that he sets to guard? It is cherubim with a flaming sword. It is cherubim that guard the presence of God. It is cherubim that guard even here the mercy seats. This mercy seat is the throne of God in the tabernacle. It is on top of the ark. You've probably seen pictures of these cherubim with their, sitting there with their wings stretched over, their wings that touch over the top of this ark of the covenant. And the mercy seat right there in the middle. Again, this mercy seat is the throne of God in the tabernacle. On the day of atonement, the blood of the sacrificed of the sacrifices would be sprinkled on the mercy seat. I mean, just think of the picture of that. As the priest comes in and he sprinkles the blood on top of the mercy seat. Covering even the covenant that is inside that Ark of the Covenant. That covenant that has been broken. And yet as that blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat, God does not look at the broken law, but he looks at the blood. The cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The idea there is not necessarily that the, the author of Hebrews does not know. I, I can't say anymore because I don't know anymore. But rather the idea here is there is so much here we just don't have time to cover. He could go on for, for days about all of the, the pictures that there are in this, the illustrations. About all the little details and the reasons why God has put them there and what they point to. But there's no time. He just wants to give an, a, a quick overview. He wants us to see these things. There's a reason why he wants us to understand this. Because of what he's going to say. Because of the better priest. In a better location. With a better sacrifice. And so here in these first five verses, we simply see the facts of the old covenant. This is what it looked like. This is the tabernacle. This is the purpose that these things served. As you come to verses 6, really verses 6 to 10, he's still talking about the facts. He's now moving from the tabernacle itself to the priesthood. What is it that the priests did? But it's here that you'll really start to notice the weaknesses of this old covenant and its system. We've seen the facts of the Old Covenant. Now you really start to see the weakness of the Old Covenant. Verses 6 to 10. Verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, when, when it had been set up exactly as God had intended, when Bezalel and Aholiab had, had finished their duty of preparing this, 
The priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the service. Again, regular access. The priest could go in and out. They could do their responsibilities, eat the bread. They're going in and out constantly. Every priest doing what he needs to do. But here the author of Hebrews quickly just glances over this. He doesn't even go into details of what all they did in there. He just They could do it whenever they wanted. They could go into the first part of the tabernacle performing the service. But, verse 7, but, into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood. He goes alone once a year, not without blood. You see, this is significant because it is in this second part where God dwells. It is where his presence is, and yet they are restricted from it. There's one man, one time, not without blood. The high priest alone, once a year, is on the Day of Atonement, and not without blood. Paul Ellingsworth, the commentator, says this, at the greatest festival of the Jewish year, the Day of Atonement, as all these animals are slain, as this blood is presented before the Lord, sprinkled on the, uh, on the mercy seat. The greatest festival of the Jewish year, paradoxically, shows most clearly the limitations of the old dispensation and its high priesthood. You see, this is good news. The Day of Atonement is good news. God set it up. Animals are sacrificed. Blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat to cover the sins of the people. And yet, what we see here is that it's not enough. It's not enough. Note the weaknesses noted here. The high priest, only one man can go in once a year. The people don't have access to God. One man does. And this one man does not have unlimited access to God. He can only go one time a year. And he cannot come on his own merit. He cannot come, in fact, at all without blood. To enter without blood was to pay with your own life. Scripture, going all the way back to Genesis, views blood as the life force. Blood represents life. And what do we know from Romans? And from the testimony, really, of all of Scripture, that sin demands death. The wages of sin is death. There must be blood if there is going to be forgiveness. He comes in with blood, one life for another. And note this, this blood that he comes with, it is not just for the people, but he offers it for himself. He himself is a sinner who needs forgiveness. The man representing the people before a holy God is himself a sinner. The weakness here stands out glaringly. He offers it for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. 
That's an interesting phrase, the sins committed in ignorance. The Old, the Old Testament does distinguish between defiant sins and sins done in ignorance. Those done on purpose in rebellion and those done on accident or, or without recognition. There was some debate in early, early Judaism between which sins were covered on the Day of Atonement. If you come to the Day of Atonement and, and you are defiant in your sins, you've done this on purpose, are they even covered? Does that, can they be covered? It appears here that the author of Hebrews is using this to show not only the limited access, but also the limited scope of the sacrifice. There is limited access to God. And the, the, the forgiveness that is offered is even limited in scope. It has to repeat it year after year after year. In verse 8, in case it's not obvious, the, the author of Hebrews comes right out and says what this means. The Holy Spirit is indicating this. Well, what do we see in this? This limited access, this, this, the limited scope of this sacrifice and its forgiveness. This is what the Holy Spirit is indicating. That the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the tabernacle, while the first tabernacle was still standing. The very existence of that first room, the very existence of that curtain that's, that, that separates man from God shows that God is not done yet. Shows that this covenant is not enough, that there is a new and better covenant coming. This is the main point the author of Hebrews is making. The limited access shows the limited nature of the covenant. It highlights to those of us now today on this side of it, looking back, it highlights to us the inaccessibility of God apart from the death of Jesus Christ. It's not done as it comes to verse 9. Still talking about what this shows. It was symbolic. The word there is literally the word from which we get parable. John MacArthur notes that the Levitical system was a parable, an object lesson about what was to come in Christ. The limited nature of this, the limited forgiveness that is offered, everything here, everything in the tabernacle, everything in the sacrificial system itself points to something greater. It is symbolic for the present time. Pointing to something. Hinting at something. This present time when gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Again, getting to the heart of it, this was all external. It was all external. It didn't change their hearts. It didn't change anything. And remember the context in which he's talking about this. What did we just see last week? What did we just see at the end of chapter 8? That God has now made a new covenant. That in Jesus Christ, this new covenant has been inaugurated. And what are the aspects of this new covenant? 
It is a change from the inside out, not from the outside in as the old covenant was. And it is a change that God himself does. This was all external. Visible action with no inward change. It had a purpose, and that purpose was to point to something else. That purpose was to show the consequences of sin, the, necessi the necessity of blood. But it points to a better sacrifice, a better Savior, a better covenant. It says to the people, this is not enough. There is something better that is coming. Concerned only with food and drinks and various washings and fleshy ordinances. Again, all of this that is just visible but no inward change. Imposed until the time of reformation. Till the new order, when the new has come, this new covenant. This is where we're going to stop this morning. Here at verse 10. Just taking a tour of the tabernacle and of the priesthood. Hopefully, noting its weaknesses. But I don't want to move on without first looking at verse 11. I want to give us a little bit of hope. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. All of the good things that this tabernacle and this priesthood pointed to, Jesus Christ came to fulfill that. All of the good things to, came, to come is in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I hope that as you look at this old covenant that you see its weaknesses and I hope that this causes you to rejoice in Jesus Christ. Start off with the silly illustrations. Welcome to you know, Altoona Tour Group. We're going to the tabernacle but that's really what this was is a tour of the tabernacle a tour of the priesthood and, and often as a family we go on a trip on our way back I'll kind of ask the kids questions you know what was your favorite part what about this what about this what have you learned on this trip and so we as we come to the end of our tour of the tabernacle and our tour of the priesthood I want to ask you what have you learned Again, this is not a heart-thrilling passage. This is not a passage that just grabs you and just inspires you to go and to change. But hopefully it is an eye-opening passage. Hopefully it is a passage where you look at this and you see the weaknesses you see the great consequence of sin that separates you from God. Hopefully as you look at this passage, you see the penalty for that sin. Death! Blood must be shed! You see the futility of year after year going about it over and over and over and over again. And before the priest can go in and sacrifice, make sacrifices for the others, he has to do it for himself because he himself is a sinner.
hopefully see the beauty that all of this points to in Jesus Christ. That's the goal of this passage this morning. Is that you would see the old covenant. That you would see how bad it really was. The purpose that it served in God's perfect plan. And it would cause you to rejoice in what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. That you no longer have to offer sacrifices. For Jesus shed his blood for you. That you no longer have to go to a priest who has only access once a year to God, but that you yourself can go to the very throne room of God. Not timidly, but boldly. I mean, just, just imagine this high priest once a year walking into the Holy of Holies, carrying this blood. Imagine how timid those steps must have been. Did we do it right? Is this enough? Is this good? Am I going to die? Brothers and sisters, Jesus died for you. You have full access to come boldly to the throne of grace. To cry out, Abba, Father, as Romans 8 says. I would encourage you, even this week, go back and meditate on these ten verses. And then as you prepare for next week, go to the next five. And look at the glorious grace and access that is yours and Jesus Christ. For he is the high priest of the good things which were to come. Rejoice in that. Come boldly to the throne of grace. Recognize what you have in Christ. Secondly, note also that it's not about changing your action, but your heart. Recognize in this passage that there is no salvation in reformation. You cannot reform yourself enough or change yourself enough to come to God. Salvation is by faith alone and Jesus Christ alone because he died for your sins. His blood covers your sins and pays your penalty. He pleads your cause before the Father. There's no salvation in changing yourself. You cannot change yourself. That is the message of the Old Covenant. You can't change yourself. You cannot reform yourself enough to, to fit to what God desires. You cannot hit His mark. We all fall short. But Jesus did. He shed His blood for you. And so I pray that as you have seen this old covenant, that it has served that purpose, that it has been eye-opening, that it has caused your heart to rejoice in what you have in Jesus Christ, to see just how sweet it is, just how fortunate you are.